Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I am your co-host, Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, uh, the Chief Culture Officer for ReFound, and also the author of Decisive Intuition. And I am proud to co-host this amazing show, Straight Talk Live, which is centered around human transformation, digital transformation, and social impact. And we have one firecracker of a guest for you today, Brian Collins. But first, I want to introduce my other co-host, an amazing partner in crime, Af Mahotra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Um, again, what a tremendous opportunity to have you all on the show. I'm Af Mahotra, the co-host of um, this wonderful, wonderful initiative that we put together and also the co-founder of Growth Enabler. Today is a special one. I always say that every single time, right, Rick? This is a really special one. I think we're going to have a laugh uh, that makes a change. Just before we started this, by the way, uh, our, our guest, who you will meet in a few seconds, was we were doing accents. Uh, we're not going to go into that right now, but we were doing accents, and Denise said, oh, my God, you guys are embarrassing. You should not be doing that accent. But um, we, we disagreed, and we just we thought, oh, my God, we've got to go live. <laughs> so we're, we're here, and Rick, back to you so you can introduce um, our good friend, and then the conversation starts about the design uh, revolution and the future of, um, of design and what we're building, and loads of good conversations um, you know, as part of this. So back to you, Rick. Thank you. And that's really the heart of the show today is design and the future that we are building. And I always find in times of chaos and uncertainty is opportunity, opportunity for designing and for leading, for creating something new. And we, I don't think we've ever seen a collective moment like this where we have such an opportunity, whatever field you're in right now, those of you listening. Um, and so I am honored to introduce uh, our next and our special guest, Brian Collins. He's the chief creative officer and co-founder of Collins. Um, he has worked with an the best brands in the world um, as far as brand strategy and design, including everything from Coca-Cola, American Express, MailChimp, Facebook, um, the list goes on, um, Twitch, um, just incredible amount of client experience, uh, company organizational experience, international experience. And not only that, have you ever met someone in your life, maybe that crazy uncle that you have, that's a genius, just borders on that bit of insanity, but in the best of ways that has you think in a different way and challenges yourself and how you think. That's what I find in Brian. Um, he's also a dear friend of mine. We got to spend good time with the poet David White in Ireland for a good week with some other group of amazing people. And so Brian, I am excited to bring you on to Straight Talk Live. Welcome. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Nice to see you. We're uh... I'm really glad um, to be here, and uh, thanks for inviting. One hundred percent. So let's get right into it, Brian. Um, when we were talking uh, a few weeks ago, you had said something that really caught my attention, and it was around uh, design. And the one thing I remember you saying was, "Design is hope made visible." Yeah. Could you break that down? What do you mean when you say that? I've never heard that together. So I'd love to hear. How do you see that? Well, would you like to do, would you like me to do it in um, your crazy uncle voice? What the? Or would you like me to do it? <laughs> I'm going to leave it up to the. I'm going to leave it or up to the like author. Do it in a design thinker's voice. But let's go ladder first. The design thinker voice enables potential tomorrows by questioning and asking deeper questions about uh, of the potentialities today, which we form new features by examining. Okay, crazy uncle, crazy yeah, uncle, crazy, crazy, crazy uncle, crazy please. Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, hope made visible was a way to reduce into three words a huge cargo of meaning, experience, history, and and and, and potential. So, you know, I'm interested in facts in my life. I'm always in, in, like I, I always like to know like like what the facts are, right? But facts are interesting. That's what is. But as a creative person, I'm far more interested in possibilities. And so. Um, the world is not made up by what is. The world is made up by people who ask what could be, right? And so that's for hope made visible was always a future-facing value, right? So design is always in some way future-facing value because what we're ending up is going to be creating something. We have a vision of a, of a product, a service, a company, a community, a government structure, um, a, a building you want to make, or even, you know, a, a, or even, you know what, you wanna, what you wanna wear to a wedding. All of those things are, are, are anticipatory. And so for me, I wanted to have a positive value about it um, instead of just like transformation or change or the worst, 
problem solving. Oh, please, just stop. <laughs> just stop. Really, you just inherited this whole these series of cliches. You know, most many people who work in creativity or marketing or strategy, they're just past they're sort of pacing together a collection of cliches that they picked up along the way. At one point, mm -hmm. a book that they might have read or some ten or fifteen years ago, they came up with some insight that was incredible. The client really liked, and they bang that drum endlessly. Um, you know, and, and um, human-centered design, bang, storytelling, bang, and, and, and it, without realizing that these things change all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to look for something that had a perennial quality about it and hope made visible um, was, the, was the idea for, that, that I thought was a, you know, at least an interesting conversation starter. Mm. The other side of that, and we, we changed our trajectory of our company when we went private, um, as if uh, we're now two weeks actually into our 10th anniversary as a private, mm. as a private independent company. Um, we changed our trajectory. Um, instead of focusing on what we made and the craft and the strategies, and these are all the things that we make, we focused our emphasis from not, not design is not what we make, but design is what we make possible for others. So mm. we shifted the conversation not around what the craft or, 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 or our deliverables, you know, but around the value that we created in partnership with our, with our partners and our clients. And that value is not only what we're creating for the people who we work for, um, but also the value that we create for, 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 for the communities and, and the customers um, that they serve. And I refused, mm -hmm. I refused to use the word consumer. Dear God, what a horrible, horrible, horrible word. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that was an attempt for us to get a, a, at a new kind of language. Mm. You talked about when we spoke um, a few weeks back, um, Brian, Came, you, I said something, and you responded in your own inimitable so, style. Was, and it, I said, was it triggered? I was probably triggered. <laughs> no, no, I, I said, I'm going to say it again, and you're going to respond the way you normally respond. And you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're going to educate us, please, as to why you feel what I'm going to say is um, it, it needs to be rethought, um, which is design thinking. Yeah. And... Uh, so you gave me a, a, a mini masterclass on why you think it's um, cod's wallop, as we say here, and it shouldn't be used. Please, please tell us why, because it's being it's been, it's one of those it's one of those terms that's being knocked out, and it, someone's grabbed onto it, and it's in blogs and articles. I'm not sure if people actually understand what they're saying, but please, please give us your view. Well, like anything, I think design thinking is practiced really well by IDEO and Tim Brown. I think he he he, he works at, at at a masterful level where he's reinventing. His discipline all the time. So I want to separate um, the, uh, IDEO, who's who brought that conversation um, into the larger business conversation. But what happens is it's become diluted to the point where it's dumbed down, where it's where it's become a handle on a, on a suitcase. But people don't pick up the suitcase; they just pick up these this 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 tool that they think is the answer to to, to sort of um, everything. I think it's become a uh, commoditized, dumbed-down version, very corporate version of, of creativity. You, yeah. put, you, know, you put the nickel in here, it goes down the machine here, and it comes out there. Um, and I think it's a very limited, uh, reductive view of the power of creativity. You know? mm. The design thinking is all about my, my experience of it, and I've, I've been exposed to it um, a lot. Uh, and I know I'm going to be exposed to it when someone starts saying the word iterate. If I hear the word iterate, iterate, iterate more than five times in five minutes, I know there's going to be a post-it fiesta somewhere, you know, um, is going to show up, you know, and then people will be iterating and ideating and, you know, close, I'm sorry, you know, I close my eyes. Are you done ideating? Um, so I, I think it became shorthand um, uh, for my experience is people who really like to make things, create stuff, design interfaces, create products, make buildings, actually make stuff you actually can, like tangible, like we like to ship. We like, when we're doing an assignment, we like to get it out the door. Many of the people I know are fascinated by design thinking, they love the word iterate because they like to keep the ball up in the air. Mm -hmm. Give it up, you iterate and, and evaluate. And, and so that's the flip side is it's a constant iterative process that you can, you can I've seen, um, in, in, uh, it can be a bit of a trap because it's fascinating, it's wonderful to kind of be in that sort of abstract space where you're constantly imagining, imagining, imagining. Mm. But, you know, um, as Steve Jobs said, real artists ship, you know, we get it out the door and then, and, and, and you see what happens. Um, so that, that's the puzzle that I have with, um, that's my bad answer to your question mm. is um, I think it's become a way, 
I think it's, uh, that is uh, a limiting uh, approach to creativity. Creativity is composed of um, sort of uh, the, uh, the anticipated, we're gonna do this. These are the deadlines, this is the budget, this mm -hmm. is the audience, this is the marketplace. These, these are the competitors, these are the market forces. But real creativity happens if you, in the unanticipated, in the unanalyzed, right. areas where you don't see things sort of poking, you know, poking out. So if you're so focused on anticipating, and you're so right. focused on strategy, and you're so focused on like these questions without realizing, well, there's something over here in your peripheral vision that's asking right. something over here, then you'll miss that. So, but, we, so I think the real creative process is allow you to be open to the, to the anticipated, which is important because you have to hit your deadlines, but mm -hmm. also the creative part is where does that, where does the unanticipated come in? Mm -hmm. Where does serendipity, chance? Um, intuition. In, um, yeah, in, intuition. Yeah, I think, I think that plays part of it. You, 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 need, you need to leave space for that. Yeah, that makes sense to me because I was even thinking as you're talking here that even the most creative process is going to also have a process, have a, there'll be systems to it at, at some points, right? And sure. I think what I hear you saying, Brian, is even if you're doing a design thinking process, how do you still make room for the unexplainable, the unknowable, um, that real creative moment where you just have no idea? And can you build that into a process as well? Well, here's, here's the puzzle. If a client reaches out to you and they, and they have a puzzle, I can guarantee you the thing that they think is the problem or the dragon to slay is not the real dragon. Right, 100%. There's always something lurking underneath it. And so when you go in these conversations, they really have to be kind of unrehearsed because what you yeah. have to find and listen to, to mm. is, is what's not being said in the room. And often the answer is, is, is in not in what's not being said. Yeah. Um, and, uh, mm. and so that means you have to have sort of an imaginal way of, of, of looking at the conversations you, you, you have to have. You come in with a very specific agenda. We do A, then we do B, then we do C, then we do D. And then, and then when someone comes in with something that interrupts that, um, for, for many people, it becomes, uh, it, it, well, it becomes that. It just becomes an interruption, not, not an input. Hold on for just a second. That makes sense to me. I plugged that out. So I have to put the power in the thing and off it goes. Now it's man of many accents. Yeah, yeah it's a, a man of a hundred accents, each one more insulting than the next. <laughs> let, let me ask you this really quick, Brian, is, is that you've worked with, you've worked with uh, some of the most you know, reputable brands out there. Here's a question that comes up for me is when you're working with someone like the size of Coca-Cola or American Express where they have had their logo and their perspective and their vision for so long yeah. and there's going to be people who are so entrenched in how they've always done it yeah how, how do you deal with resistance as a creative leader how do you deal with when someone's so attached to their own perspective and story and then you're coming in to disrupt that because i think so many people in today's world that's a big conversation happening right now i'm not coming how do you i'm not coming to to disrupt anything mm -hmm. and that's so the talk about that disruption is a word that the advertising agency and industry has banged that drum endlessly we have to be disruptive that comes out of an advertising model primarily you know started in the late 19th century um uh, ag you know accelerated by electronic media first radio and then television which was advertising was designed to disrupt the things that we really like like advertising is between mm. the buildings we want to walk into it's mm. between the articles that we read either in a magazine or a newspaper in the old world or online in a new world or it's in between the, the scenes or the, now the beginning or the end of a film we want to watch or interrupts a TV show that we want to watch, right? So the advertising world was disrupt, disrupt. Disrupt is not the only mechanism for creating value or creating meaning. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the advertising agency bangs this drum endlessly is as bad as the design industry banging the less is more drum or the problem solving drum. It's an inherited cliche, you know, disruption like less is more. It's not gravity. Someone mm -hmm. made, made those words up. And so disruption is not the mechanism. And that's where people get our, our disruption might be the outcome. Something new might be the outcome. It's not the intent. It's not the purpose. Mm -hmm. And any of those brands, particularly storied brands, God, like Coca-Cola or American Express, they're multi-generational, um, which means my grandfather, my great-grandfather um, know these brands. Coca-Cola in particular yeah. Um, and that brand has, is remarkable. It's one of the most famous brands, you know, um, of, uh, you know, of the modern era and still persists. And so I think because it's multi-generational and when the brands start to either their relevancy starts to fade or mm. a new audience doesn't understand who they are, 
or, um, or, or, or they want to move into new marketplaces or the story that they told or telling about them isn't as resonant as it used to be. What you have to do is I do two things. I go back and I try to find two pieces of information. What did the founder first say about his company when he began? What was the, or what people call it in comics language, the origin story. Right. Why did they begin? What was the purpose? And then two, if you can't find that, you'll find it in the papers of incorporation in the US patent office, because they have to explain what the logo was, or they explain, mm. you can find Levi Strauss um, uh, 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 in, the, in the United States patent office, Levi Strauss's patent for denim jeans. And he talks about like clothing for the working man that was affordable, resilient, it would stand up to mine for mine workers. I mean, and so you can find the roots, okay, mm. of the brand in its original biography. Where did it begin? What was its purpose? How did it start? Now, this doesn't mean you have to confuse biography with identity, right, or history with identity. Because just because Levi Strauss was the first, okay, the larger value is that it was the original. It was the first to invent it. So the value for Levi's always over time in the United States and particularly in Europe um, and in Asia, it, it positions itself as the original. And what do original people do? They're on the frontier, like the miners were in San Francisco in the middle 19th century. So you can find the values by going back to feel what the original intent was mm -hmm. and find that story and then say, guys, you forgot what you were. Or we have to go back to the well and find a new way to, 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 to profess a truth. And when you find out what that truth is, then you can reinterpret that truth all sorts of new ways for all sorts of new markets. You know, people say, for example, um, Disney. That's about wholesome family entertainment. Well, that's true. That's what you see. But what really sits at the heart of the Walt Disney Company and sat at the heart of the Walt Disney Company from Walt Disney's very first success is not about family entertainment. It's about creating a character that you could fall in love with and put that character in a situation where you have to cheer for them, where they have to persevere, and they have to get through something. They want something, there's a struggle, they get around it, and then you are on that struggle with them. Therefore, you can fall in love with Mickey Mouse, you can fall in love with the Seven Dwarfs, you can fall in love with Snow White, mm. or you can fall in love with Frozen. It's the mm. same idea. And then they take that idea, the affection that you have for a character, and then they redeploy that in all sorts of ways. Lunchboxes, battleships, theme parks, skating outfits, pajamas and toasters and jam and interactive games. So, but that truth is, let's create a character, put him in a story that you care about so you, so you fall in love with like um, that character. Mine is, uh, you see in the corner there, mine's, uh, where is he? There's Pinocchio in the corner. <laughs> He's my, that's, that's my favorite Disney character. So I think, and Disney understands that truth. So they go back to that well again. And when they lose their way, as they did in the 1980s, um, when their animation division was about to kind of drop or be eradicated, they went and got two incredible storytellers um, uh, who, who um, had a tradition on Broadway to create amazing stories. The animators knew how to create characters and they repeated the cycle all over again. And they're doing it again now. Mm. So they go back to the truth. And so that's not a that's not a disruptive tactic at all. That's a reassertion, and that's a and that's that's a that's a return to uh, not disruption, but I would argue revelation. Mm -hmm. What's the what, what's the truth? What's the cross general truth? I mean, sort of cross yeah cross general. Then you get into that truth. Then you get in the in the, in the era of mythic, mm. because your grandfather used it, your mom used it. My grandfather, I remember going to Cape Cod. My grandfather, I remember the day he opened up a cooler and bought a five cent. Coca-Cola for me when, as a kid mm. gave it to me with one of those like straws. straws yeah. it, was, it, it was amazing. So, mm. and I've, I've done the same with my, with my nieces and nephews, you know, so mm. um, a little bit less sugar, a little, not as much. <laughs> the old Coca-Cola um, bottles are like seven ounces. Now the serving size is, is large. Big gulps. Yeah. Me, as it were. Um, so I don't say, I don't necessarily recommend those unless you're crazy for Coca-Cola, <laughs> but I love, I love the Coke brand. I like it's Coke. I like it's cross-generational qualities. And the other thing that I like about Coke, which is true, is whether you're Queen Elizabeth or you, you're um, someone who lives um, uh, in, in, in Mexico City or someone who lives in a far-flung part of the world, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. There's no better version of Coca-Cola. There's no premium version of Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. There's not S-class Coca-Cola. It's mm -hmm. Coca-Cola everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it, if someone in Fallujah loves Coca-Cola and someone in Minneapolis loves Coca-Cola, that's one thing we have in common.
-hmm. If we have one thing in common, for me, it's like, well, what else might we have in common? Mm -hmm. Sorry. I'm I'm, I'm off to the races. Sorry about that. Af, you had a great question about brands and stories of today. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's a very powerful. Thank you for that. Um, it's got me thinking about my experience with Coca-Cola when I was young. Um, yeah. And um, just like to turning the flipping the coin just for a moment, just because not that we want to be gloomy or negative here, but there's some brutal realities that we're dealing with in the world that we're in today. And yeah. the big brands, as you probably know, have to deal with brand, you know, negative brand perception because of a, a series of things that they end up doing or not doing. Um, right whether it's firing people, letting go of people, whatever the term may be. And of course, you know, people are going through high levels of stress. There's a lot of panic around the world. People are losing jobs. Just today in the UK, we've announced that we're close to another lockdown. So, you know, brands are struggling, retail and or enterprise brands. So the story you just shared, which is a very profound one and an important one where we've got a memory, we've got a relationship with a consistent brand. It's a level playing field. You know, whether I'm rich or you're rich or poor, we still drink Coca-Cola, right? So that's a binding factor. Um, But give us your perspective on, and two parts to this. One is... Um, when you're hit with the catastrophe and things are going shitty and they're going, they're going in the other direction, where and how does any, if at all, does what you do play a role in it? Is there any work you do that helps to rejig the brand message, the character, the communication to the market, or even for that matter, the executives in an organization, sometimes they're, they're drooping shoulders, you know, because times are tough. How, where do you fit into that, um, in that equation or do you, or, you know, just to, so we can get that perspective. I think that's a, I think it's a good question. I'm going to fumble my language um, a little bit here. And, and, and sure. I think it's an affirmation to go back to the same story I was talking about before, which is what's been most true about you. Brands are made up of two things, internally facing question, which is how, what's most authentic and what's most true about us. What, what do we believe when no one's looking? What do we believe? And then two, relevance. How are we congruent? How are we relevant to, uh, that's always an outside question, right? Mm. So these times, you better go back to what you really believe in. Because if you don't sit on, stand on solid ground, then you'll be just in reactive mode. What do you really believe? You know, what's important to you? What's important to you as a company, you know? Um, and second of all, you have to now take a stand. You know, you have to absolutely, look what's happened to Nike stock since mm. they took a stand on Colin Kaepernick. Mm. Exploded. People attacked them, but they said, no. This is what we believe. Now, the people who, who, um, who own Chick-fil-A believe something different. They're, you know, they, they have a different orientation and good for them. But that's how they believe. And so they don't open on Sundays you know, because, of, uh, because of a series of beliefs that say we're going to behave in this way. Good for them. But they've both taken positions. If you don't take a position in this world, you're in trouble. You can't mm. sit the sidelines. You'll be taken out. Mm. So, and you started to see it because you can't be immune from the conversations that are, that are happening. When a lot of the legislation that was happening, uh, a lot of uh, what would be considered anti-feminist legislation that was happening in Georgia, that was um, was by many considered hostile to women, started to pass. Um, a lot of brands stood up and said, uh, "We, if this goes through, we will pull our film production." You know, Atlanta has become Hollywood too. So many movies were made here, and the and the production industry said, "We we won't produce there." Now the consequences and like. They raised the conversation, I think, and, and, and that legislation backed off. But there are other consequences, which also all the, all the you know the people who live in, and work and the women who work in the movie industry mm-hmm. in Atlanta. So, but nevertheless, those organizations had to take a stand. You can't sit in the sidelines; you'll be taken out. So, which means you've got to understand what your principles are and, and what your purpose is. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see? Uh, one follow-up question with CEOs of companies. This is a, an interesting one. So when you have a historic brand with decades of, of um, you know, um, there, there's almost a narrative that you've just built through because of the experience of the first founder. And I'm mean, giving you a really sort of um, an unsexy example of an accountancy, right? As opposed to a, a, a product company like Coca-Cola and an accountancy that's been going on for years and years and years and years, let's just say a hundred years or whatever, right? Sure a big consultancy. Um, Now, the CEO of an organization is hired at a certain point and a calamity or a catastrophe hits him or her and they respond or don't respond. They take a position or not in this situation. How often do you see that the brand's success or failure even sometimes is to do with the CEO or the leadership or the board um, 
And, you know, sometimes you, you know, have you been in situations where you say, look, you can bring me in as long as you want. I can keep coming in and guiding you. But at the end of the day, the problem is not my consultancy or my advice. It's, it's an individual or it's a type of leader. Talk to us a little bit about that. Shed some light on that. All right. I'm not going to be as adept um, at this as I would like, but let me take, let me take a step. Are you looking for what kind of decisions need to be made by an executive when they, when they run or a board, when they run into to in, in, into trouble, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm looking for clarity around the question. Yeah. So the, 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 what I'm trying to understand is when you have, you have the brand of an organization and then you have a, um, a CEO who comes into the business, a yep. CEO change every two, three, four, five years. Mm -hmm. Um, and often you find that the connection between the CEO and his or her message and the brand isn't always the same. Like they, they lose it sometimes when right? it's oh, yeah. detached. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. And you stitch it together. You're going to stitch it together because you're like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. Let me remind you. And then, of course, there's like, oh, my God, I, just, I didn't realize. Yes, thank you. But have you come across situations now or in the past where you feel, well, no matter how much advice I give you and how much I help you to stitch it together, there are CEOs who just don't get it or boards who don't get it. Um, is that, is, you know, is your guidance and advice uh, almost... Um, uh, what's the term for it? I'm looking for a term. Is is it all? Is it always um, the the kind of pill that that solves the 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 headache or cures the headache? Or do you see in these times where you're saying, look, companies are going to go down because they've got historic brands, but they're going to really fuck it up because the CEO of an organization or the board just doesn't get it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Trying to understand if that, if that does happen. I, 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 they, these are all individual sort of situations, but I, I would argue that look, I had the. <laughs> I'll tell a story I don't tell very often. But shortly after Steve Jobs returned to Apple, he called me and said, would I like to come and work um, with him? And, uh, and, I, and uh, I said, yes, I would. Um, and, so I, and so I did for a very short period of time. I ultimately got um, the company that I worked for at the time, uh, which was Ogilvy and Mather, called me and said, we have, a, we have a better future for you here. Would you like to come back? And after I was there for about a month, I said, yes, I'll, um, I'll come back. One of the reasons why I was inspired as hell by Steve Jobs, he was absolutely incredible. I mean, he was, and, and he ran two companies. One, he ran very differently than the other. Mm -hmm. Everyone at Apple, their job at that company, after I was there for a very short period of time, I realized their job was to second guess Steve Jobs. That's what they do. What would Steve do? You think Steve would like this? Steve doesn't like that. Steve's coming by. You can't take notes. That's Steve, that's Steve. I remember walking down a hallway with him and we were on our way to a design meeting and there was a, a piece of blue foam, sort of free form, sitting on a counter. And he stopped in his tracks and it was, it was walking through a big design space. And, and he didn't walk through the, the, um, the, uh, the space sort of very often. He was you know, doing other things and traveling and whatnot. So he walks through people, Steve Jobs, and he stops in his tracks, picks up this sponge. I'm, 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 I'm sitting, I'm walking beside him and there's uh, in his assistant room, so just three of us. He picks it up and he turns it to the woman who's like in shock that Steve Jobs has suddenly stopped. She's never met him. She's never talked to him. She said, he goes, this is cool. He passes it to me. It's a cool temperature, right? It's kind of had this kind of spongy resilience. It didn't feel like a sponge. It held this the shape and then it slowly came back again. He pushed it and it was, and it was light. It didn't weigh anything. It was cool. So he goes, what is this stuff? And he goes, it's something we're looking at. She said, this is amazing. Um, you please come and talk with me about this. And he turns to Andrea's assistant. Andrea, let's get her on my calendar. And then she goes, oh my God. And he was gone. Steve. That, that woman was like, I'm sure she went and talked with him later, but Steve was a designer and that's how he ran it. Apple was a reflection of him. He, Johnny Ogg wasn't the designer, always brilliant designer. Steve Jobs was, was a designer at Apple. I mean, Johnny's a genius and deserves every accolade he's received, but it was really Steve's fascination with typography, color, form, design history that you could, that's why it just mm. got faded out of him. But the other company that he ran, was Pixar mm -hmm. and Pixar thousands of voices, hundreds of voices were, were allowed to bloom. And he recognized that he couldn't run Pixar the way that he ran Apple. Apple, Apple was his kingdom. So he recognized, so he still, he supported them, but he let um, uh, those, those leaders go off and create stuff. And he supported them in a way that they could create stuff through architecture, through, through design, through his knowledge of how you manage creativity, but he was not up there grill. Whereas at Apple, he was up everybody's grill. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about it is he had taken over from an executive. I remember when, when he was recruiting me, he walked down the hallway that um, he did not design the building. He did not. He was making apologies. 
that's awful. I hate that print. I hate this carpet. I didn't do it. <laughs> apologizing for all the stuff he didn't do. We're changing all of this. We're changing all of this. We, he was sort of shocked by what had happened to Camelot after he left. Yeah. And so he literally just apologizing to me. <laughs> Who the hell was that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. He, he felt it viscerally. Mm. So when his, his return to that was, was the return of the king to Camelot. And, you know, as they say in Camelot, you know, Britain and the king are one. Mm. The land and the king are one. That was, it was not more true than it was with, with Steve Jobs. For me, I could not acquiesce on compliance is, you know, um, a- acquiescence. Follow my lead. Do what I say. Do what I say. Do what I say. I re- began to, re- re- he said to me, I want to go get the best designers in the world, Brian. I want you to run design um, and be responsible for design. Johnny was responsible for industrial design. I was responsible for graphic design and retail design as vice president. And I began to realize after my first and second crit that Steve had his own vision and it was particularly potent and sharp. He was like Disney understanding like in a sixth sense of what people loved. Mm. And so I remember going over some iPod packaging that had been done before I rather uh, 50 different comps. And were, one was better than the next, all finished around the new level iPod packaging. And he said, I'll take that photo, I'll take, we'll, we'll, we'll make the top white, we'll put a silver logo on it. and I, someone's lobbying me. I'll put a black and white copy of Run DMC. And I want like Janis Joplin on the other side. And I want Yoko on the other. Any, anyway, he designed it. All these variations, he, what, he's, what he did, the way he saw design or anything that was different than what he wanted, it was a way for him to evaluate, is there any idea in here that's better than the one I already have? Mm-hmm. And so he looked at all this, is that better? Is that better? If he saw it, he goes, yeah, that's better than what I'm thinking. But most of the time, what he was thinking was dead right. So your job as a designer was that one or two or 3% chance where your idea was better than what Steve had in his mind. That's what got through. And I'm like, I, I, I can't do, um, wow. <laughs> that's no, a lot of pressure. No amount of Ferraris is going to make me happy. Now, when it came to industrial design, because he wasn't an industrial designer, he had to, I think he had a certain point of view. But it came to graphic design, he was very particular. He saw graphic design as a custodial, almost like, like janitorial. The graphic design had to get out of the way of showing me the amazing product. So it was a very different take. And I think design should be much more expressive. So I saw where that was going. I was concerned there was going to be an organ rejection. Um, the CEO of Ogilvy called me back and she said, we'd like you to come back and here's what you can do. I'm like, be right there. Um, but that was a difference for Steve. Had I worked at Pixar, um, and I think that might've been a different space, but Steve was very particular about his vision and he knew what he wanted and he had a sixth sense of what people were looking for. And he was right almost all the time. I mean, there were sometimes he failed, um, but at that point he was dead right. And then who am I to say, hey, I think it should be like this. <laughs> I'm Steve Jobs. <laughs> I think it should be like, like that. I'm like, I can't argue with that. And my fear is that I so love pleasing our clients and pleasing, the, I, I wanna make the people we work with happy. Yeah. I was concerned I would give up my vision because he was so compelling and so charismatic and we got along so well and I liked him so much and he was charming and he was nice and he was kind to me. I would just give up my vision in order to follow his. Mm. And, I, and, I didn't want to, and I didn't want to do that. Many people do and it's a viable choice. Yeah. But I didn't want to, um, I didn't, I, I, it, was, it was an existential choice. Do I follow my own path mm-hmm. or do I follow Steve's amazing one? You know, and no, and, and, and no, and uh, no number of Aston Martins was going to make me happy mm-hmm. if I couldn't follow my own path. So I, I knew myself at that point. And so I returned to Ogilvy and made it. We had a Navy SEAL commander named Mark Devine on here recently, and he was talking about following your vocation, that, yep. that soul calling that you have. Oh. And I could just feel in that choice point how compelling that would be to be around Steve Jobs and all that comes with that. Um, and yet I appreciate you listening on that deeper level and those tough decision points around gosh, what is my deeper vocation here? And does this serve that? Well, with deeper vocation, I had a sense that, I sense an organ rejection coming. Yeah. And so I want, I'm like, oh, this is, this is, this is not, I, I don't think this is an environment. And the people at Ogilvy knew me really, really well. And Steve Hayden, who wrote the 1984 commercial for Steve, was the, at the time, the, uh, the, the, chair, the vice chairman of the company. And he said, you know, I, I, Brian, I, you know, I know Steve, I work with him. Um, on Monday, you'll be, the, you'll be the prince. On Tuesday, you'll be the duke. On Wednesday, you might even be the king. On, on Friday, you'll be in the dungeon because yes. he does this. And, I, and um, I was, I'm not particularly wired for like where I like some sense of constancy. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a decision for me to return. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad I did. And now we have, you know, about 10,000 square feet here in Greenwich Village, an office in, in uh, San Francisco, and we're building a new studio in Brooklyn. So yes. yeah, all these books are going to move to a new studio in Brooklyn very shortly. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from him from a, either a leadership or design perspective? What did you really gain by being around him? You know, I don't talk about Steve on uh, my, my time there very much. This is probably the second time in public I've ever spoken about it because it's, it's an interesting conversation. You read, and, you, and you raised the CEO conversation. Mm. I don't really want to talk about it that much because I've seen too many people who use Steve's, who try to use the, the, their association with Steve or mm -hmm. Apple as a halo effect. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, and I'm and like, oh, I work there and I know this and I know Steve's. I'm like, I, I did at his house. I met his family uh, you know, several times. I had uh, lots of dinners with him. But I have no, um, I don't want my story to be that I once worked with Steve and banged the Steve Jobs stories. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes. Did I like him? Yes. Is it part of my, part of my uh, biography? Yes. It's not particularly part of my identity. Mm. And so I, um, I've seen too many people rise to fortune by saying, Steve did these five things or the six things of Steve Jobs. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, did you ever meet him? No, but I know because I'm like, cause I work <laughs> um, really. I, I have, I have a slight, I have well, a different. I'm, I'm, I'm going to resist the, the, the borrowed interest of, of Steve Jobs remarkable life. I, I uh, let's take, let's, I have a different question and it relates to some of the cool projects that you've been involved with, yeah. uh, with some, some super cool brands, right? Like the Spotify, yeah. um, that I would call them like the new age modern trendy i really want to be connecting with that brand with products that are very different to the old school sort of products that um at least when i was growing up and doing my education the stories that we were told back in the mba or whatever it was was you know the traditional the coca-cola the procter and gamble the unilever those sorts of brands right and of course this, this new age of companies is phenomenal tell us a little bit about the differences, I mean, how, what experiences are you going through? Like when you're working with the Spotify's of the world, new CEOs, maybe younger CEOs, I don't know, you know, um, different backgrounds, some Europeans, some Americans, and from people from different backgrounds. What's the main difference between the traditional uh, Coca-Cola type experience, not just them, but that sort of company, sure. and, and this new age of, of leaders? Tell us a little bit more about the differences. The new age of leaders realize that they're not in competition with their competition. They're in competition with the future itself. Mm. That they're trying to create value that those companies are not worried about. They're not looking over their shoulders. They're looking behind them to understand history and then looking forward. So um, our brands that we work with are not like our brands, particularly because the brands we've worked with, they're not mm. interested in being the best in their category. They're best in their vertical or they're best in that. So they don't have all this mindless inherited language from MBA programs. They haven't hired a lot of MBAs who tell them you should do this or professional managers, you should do this. They go, I think we should do this. I sense this. Let's put some resources into this and try this. Yeah. And then they go, and then they're not interested in being the best or doing, you know, uh, I, you know what I don't hear from new generation companies. I never hear this word. I hear it from old, I hear it from old companies. I hear best practices all the time from old companies, best, yeah. practices, best practices. Oh, really? You, you're gonna get out of your competitive battle by best practices, by benchmarking what everybody else did? Founder entrepreneurs, like we work, yeah. don't worry about that. They don't wanna become the best. They wanna become the only. Yeah. And so yeah. whether it's Equinox, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's um, MailChimp, whether it's uh, Twitch, yeah. You know, we work with them to become the only, because when you're the only, all sorts of things happen. Your brand becomes a force multiplier. Your price competitiveness can become like how you define price and your value. You define the value, you drive the conversation, and you're always making sure that people are on their back foot. And so that's who we work with. I work with people who want to become the only, and the old school brands are trying to play sort of catch up. And they have to, I, I understand legacy brands. The other thing is that new brands recognize that if they don't move faster than the culture itself, they're in trouble. So the quality of the people they surround themselves mm. with is yeah, they're yeah. hired by the CEO. Just the intellect, they're moving fast and they want to move and they want to, and, 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 and they, and, and they want to, you know, they run fast and they want to make quick decisions. Mm. And so 
I'd, uh, the energy of those sort of uh, future-facing companies is remarkable. We've changed the way we worked. So mm. I hate the word iterate, but we go back and forth much more often. And the, mm. and the quality of the conversation is this. I'll tell you what the difference is. We got a phone call in our first conversation with a very, very, very famous um, social media brand. Um, and they called us up and they said, one of our products that everybody uses, that everyone lo loves, it, it, it doesn't feel right. It feels generic. It doesn't feel distinct. We have to tie it back to the master brand, but we want it to have its own point of view. I'm like, we can do that. Great. We showed them some of the work we had done. That's great. They, um, they hired us. We, we did our scope of work. We were hired within a week. And then they came and they briefed us in our office in San Francisco and said, great, can you come in and meet the founder CEO? So I'm in the office quickly within two and a half weeks of getting the first phone call with a very famous founder CEO who I once, you know, years before I'd met in, in a conversation at Davos, just, you know, and he had a hoodie on, he didn't talk to anybody. I'm like, there. So I met him again. And we were talking about the future of the company, what he wants to make happen. We got briefed in about an hour and then we were off doing work as opposed to a very famous media company in New York. I got a call from a junior marketing, like vice pre president. She called and then she said, I have to have a call with my vice president of marketing. And that was a call, it was two weeks later. And then she said, oh, we need to talk to the CMO. We get in the line with the CMO, we're waiting. It was you know, a conference call. It was for two o'clock, it's 2.10. She's on line 2.15. She said, oh, the CMO can't make it, I'm sorry, bye. Mm -hmm. Just to that, that meeting, it was about a month. And then I get on the phone with them. This is a very famous old school media brand. Famous, famous, famous. They said, we love all the work you've done with Spotify and all these other brands. We, we need to be in that game. And then, um, and then so I had a, so, and then the second time the meeting with the CMO was canceled the last week. She said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very busy. So they said, well, can you send us over the proposal? I said, proposal to do what? Well, we need, you know, what you did with Spotify and all those other brands. Well, I need to have a conversation with the leaders of your company to figure out what you want to make happen. Oh, you know, just give us one of those proposals. I'm like, no, I, Hmm. I can't. Right. I, I can't. You've you, you just turned us into exotic menials. Hmm. I just have two meetings and you're not paying us. I, I, I put aside, I, by the time we got there, she'd, she'd either delay. Um, I never met with the CMO. Hmm. Um, and she'd canceled um, five and, and sometimes 15 minutes into the meeting. So I said, can you imagine what it's going to be trying try to like, like to, to run this project? She's yeah. not paying us and, she's, and she wants us to work with her and she's not showing up for, for these meetings. So, um, you know, uh, we had so much other work from other clients. We just said, there's so many firms who would want your money that you just will fall over backwards just to send you a proposal. You should hire them mm -hmm. um, because we've got clients who want to move and are serious and are deeply interested in engaging in a deep conversation. And, yeah. and, and we have to move. You've, you've been talking with us for a month and a half now. And in the meantime, the other, the other brand we talked about, we, we'd already launched their, we'd already completed their, their first round of strategy. And, and we got that call within like a week of each other. So uh, the brands we work with, they want to make it, they want to make a difference. They want to move fast and they want to move smart. So we built our company to work that way. It's, uh, you want to supplement, it's a great point, supplement that point for the audience. The average research suggests that the average number of range of executives it takes to make a sales decision in an, a traditional enterprise is anything between 11 and 20, yeah. 11 and 20. Yeah. Um, again, if you take off the, the disregard, the deal size, but 11 and 20. I understand, you, I, I understand why, because there are yeah. huge, a lot of people involved from, from marketing to communications, even to, to resources, to, to, to procurement, to procurement mm -hmm. public relations, executives, suite. All. I understand why these huge legacy companies, we, we had a meeting with 30 executives. For, wow. for, for a brand, a very storied brand that we ended up hiring us. But I had to be very patient with that conversation. It was very different from a, from a startup brand that we work in San Francisco. But they wanted what we knew how to do. And I was like, are you sh sh sure? And I had the conversations were great. And they ended up wanting, wanting to hire us, but I had to be very, I had to, I had to approach it, I had to approach that conversation very differently. And I couldn't dismiss the fact that each one of those 30 people have a point of view. All those 30 people, Want to make a difference too so we ended up having a different kind of a conversation the zoom the, the zoom room was massive mm. um but you know so far the project's you know going really well because they understand um what they want to do they, they under, the company understands themselves pretty well and so we, we found a way to work with a huge global enterprise mm. big one so mm. i have n i i like solving really messy problems at scale mm. and, and i don't just want to work with startups we want to work you know we've worked with we, we rebranded the largest insurance company in the world. 
Chubb, you know, we work with the largest, one of the consumer brands, you know, in the world, Microsoft, we work with Coca-Cola, you know, we work with HBO. I mean, these are not small enterprises mm -hmm. and they require a different kind of patience, but they also require a different kind of willingness to kind of, you know, um, be in dialogue to find out what, what they really need. And, and, and in some cases, making sure we, um, we push them in a way that, that, um, that's understandable for them. Do you, do you see the rebranding exercise? Um, I'm just trying to understand maybe a basic question. Do you yeah. see the, the rise in demand for rebranding and the kind of work you're doing and others are doing increase? Are there any sort of trends where you see actually when there's a catastrophe like the pandemic, you're seeing more and more people knocking on your door? Or is it sort of, uh, don't really know, it's scattered, you know, it really depends, bullish, bearish markets, don't really matter as much. What, is there anything that you've, you've worked at, aha, uh -huh, now I know I'm going to get loads of knocks on the door? No, I, we didn't, we, uh, we thought that this might be a time of re retrenchment and in March mm -hmm. and April it was, we were like, what are we doing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But starting in June, July, August, I think people realized that this was a, a moment in time where they could say, they, what is it that we really, mm -hmm. really do? What do we really stand for? This is a moment where we can sort of examine ourselves. Well, how can we get better? And so, and, and can we move on this right now? And so then starting in June and July, our phone has not stopped ringing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, we've been, you know, really, really blessed. Yeah. So, um, I've been very fortunate, um, and, and the kind of clients have called us with really interesting puzzles. And I, I don't use the word rebranding. It, it, it sounds like a paint job. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, nice. They, um, uh, they really have some fundamental issues that the story that they used to tell about themselves was no longer big enough for them, you know? Um, and the other thing they started to do that I always find really fascinating is particularly with the product or service. I always ask. What else can this thing do? Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Brands are, have two, right? They have real value and, and, um, and perceived value. And the real value comes out of the product. Twitch, what else could they do? Started for gamers. What? People like to stream Mr. Rogers' neighborhood stories and talk about that. They talk about, they like to talk about social eating. They love following Bob Ross. And all of a sudden, a platform which is designed specifically for gaming mm. and its intensity and its visual cacophony and all its language and emails come out of gaming. Look what? It turns out that moms who love watching reruns of Mr. Rogers love it. Mm. And so what we realized, okay, what else, where else can we go? The platform and the technology allows for all sorts of conversations. So we can't call those people gamers anymore. So we call them creators. And then two, we have to open up the story, not about gaming. We have to say, this is a place where your stream and your community is waiting for you. You can create your own broadcast channel. So we turn that as everything's waiting for you and, and uh, Twitch turned that into you're already one of us. Mm. And, and now there's music and there's sports. And incredibly, over the, over the summer, it became the platform for the anti-racist conversation. New York mm. Times wrote this amazing story about so many live streaming conversations and conferences and meetings um, around Black Lives Matter that Twitch was the go-to platform. Now, mm. can you imagine that two years ago? Yeah. There's, a Black Live meet, like there's a Black Lives Matter meeting on Twitch. Like, mm. That's a gaming platform. No, it's not. It's a, it's a creative and a community platform. Mm. And we had to do that, by the way, by not losing what made them weird in the first place. So we actually made right. them a more muscular version of what they were. We didn't turn their logo into Helvetica, give them a pastel background, or put some cursive <laughs> millennial ding-dong paint job on them. You know, I don't understand that. You know, paint, pastel paint. It was like, that's the millennial look. No, it's not. That's the look of like laziness. My experience is anyone who says simple is best, simple is best, simple is best, is because simple is all they know how to do. Mm. Yeah. Thanks. So in, in this case, Twitch was this vibrant thing. We, we, we held on to the community, we retained mm -hmm. the gamer community, and we, we put more seats to the table. I really am seeing this thread in this whole conversation that you mentioned earlier that how do you come back to the origin story and really honor that seed of the creation and the relevance of right in, in the moment? How do we keep opening to that conversation around the relevance? And what what's else alive? can we do? Right. What else can we do? So we don't have a brand that lives for five years and we flip it and sell it. We have a brand that lives for 30, 40 years. Yeah. What else can we go? Where else can we go? And so that requires two things. Mm -hmm. Understanding what your technology is. So it might open you might up into new territories and to understand what your highest order brand values are. Mm -hmm. So you get, so the brand gives you the brand, high order brand values give you permission to move into all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. If Disney makes you fall in love, if Disney was about, animated films for you know for family entertainment as opposed to characters you fell in love with 
Disney never would have gotten involved with Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they can Good take point. those characters and put them on a Broadway stage. They can take those characters and put them in a game. They can take those characters and put them in an ice show. They can take that same idea and it migrates yeah. across all these expressions. So you find out what your highest order mm-hmm. value is and you find out what else you can do. Then you, then you expand your real value and you expand your perceived value. Fantastic points. I want to remind the audience to ask your questions now. We've got 10 more minutes left. So please stream in your questions. We want to bring those to Brian. Um, I have one that's uh, bubbling up from our conversation before. Sure. And you talked about the power of language. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about is as we're coming into this new world that we're still morphing into and I'm not quite sure what it is, yeah. post-pandemic, current pandemic, whatever the heck it is, even London going into lockdown right now again in the UK. Yeah. Um, so the question is around, you had said something like, we don't really have a new language yet. We don't have the metaphors yet to lead us to this new horizon. Could you say more about what do you see around the power of language and how do we start to listen to that? Yeah, I think this gets into, uh, this gets into a couple of things. I think the most important thing is that we've inherited language from the 20th century that no longer serves us well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, uh, you know, What's, what's the language sometimes in here? I'm sorry, I just got a, something just popped up on my screen for a second. Um, all the language of the military in marketing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. chief marketing officers, you know, mm-hmm. our target audience. Target audience, like we're some ammunition, we have to aim it at them. <laughs> we have discussions in war rooms, you know, right. we'll search for the killer app. We need boots on the ground on this. <laughs> How, like, by the way, the new age companies, or, or let's say the next generation companies, they don't have this inherited language. They don't use militarized, weaponized language to understand mm-hmm. their audiences. They don't mm-hmm. use it. But the old school marketers do target audience. Pew, 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 pew. Really? <laughs> so, right? The disruption. Like, like, all right. this. We, like, we think we're, we're like, working on it. And, and, and the language is, is nonsense, you know? Mm. And, uh, you know, what have we got? Oh, my task on my bulleted list. Bing, 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 bing. You know? <laughs> Shoot it to me in, a, in an email. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're battling with each other all day long. Here's another one. Stakeholders. Our stakeholders. Our, our stakeholders. Our stakeholders are our most important thing. Are, are you a stakeholder? I'm a stakeholder. Well, the only I'm, a, I'm a shareholder. I'm a stakeholder. Well, shareholders are important. Okay. I'm not saying the stakeholders aren't important, but the conversation ain't about stakeholders. Yeah. It's about the stakes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. What are the stakes? Right. What frontier are you going to live on? What right. value are you, going to, are you going to be put in the world? You know, you and I, all of us, and probably everyone on this phone call, have enormous privilege, enormous privilege, and even privilege we don't even realize. Anybody in many parts of the world would die to, to have the, and live the existence that we have. Mm-hmm. We get to talk. I, I'm in my office in New York. I'm surrounded by about 4,500 books I've collected since I was 10. I, you know, and I've, um, I, I work with 50 of the most incredible people um, in my own company, and I get to work with the most amazing Founders, clients, marketing people, designers in, in the world. I and mean, I am blessed in the kind of conversations, the kind of work that we get to do. So with privilege has to come, and John Dunning, he talks about this, um, integrity. You've got, if we're in a position of privilege, we have to maintain a position of integrity. Mm-hmm. Integrity about can we live our full lives? Can we be honest in what we do? Can we push people to a frontier where they need to be? How do they live that wholeheartedly? How do they live that with sincerity and honesty? So it makes a difference. And it turns out the companies that we work with are eager to have these conversations because everyone wants to make a difference and everyone really secretly wants to leave the world a little better than it is. Hmm. So we were an enormous privilege. So the kind of discipline around maintaining integrity in our work and integrity in what we do is really, really important because we could, because you know, in many cases, we're going to be helped informing the world as it moves forward. So because of, because of enormous privilege. So I, I think that's the important thing that we, that we, that we have to bring to, 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 to these conversations, a sense of our own integrity and our integrity to ourselves, integrity to our communities, uh, the integrity to the enterprises that we serve. So I, I fumble at it and we will, but that idea of integrity is, is, is important. I had one more. I had one more question before we wrap up. Or any questions coming? Because I think it's a nice way to close this off. When we spoke, you you made a really. Um, I think we were messing around. We were joking or whatever. We were doing some whatever we were doing. We were but probably I think you, joking. It wasn't very funny. 
<laughs> and something like this. But you made a really important point. It's quite profound, actually, in this world that we live in. So this thing that we're doing, we've got this video going on and you're sitting in your study and yep. we're in different parts of the world. And you talked about the fact that we've got this window, this, these, this square, and yep. this is now our stage. Can you just um, add a little bit more masala? We, uh, uh, you know, Rick and I talk about this concept of chutzpah masala, um, so uh, which which hopefully makes a bit of sense. So can you can you give us the chutzpah masala version of why is it important for us to train ourselves to understand the importance of this square? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, because yeah. we're performing, right? This is this is yeah. performative. I'm not particularly good at it. I don't have the right lights. I have friends of mine got really serious at lights and sounds and cameras, and I did. A while, but we're, we're a lot of that is you know under construction. But yes, this is it. This is the stage. You know, just as you would go into a, to a conference room and you want to like present yourself in the right way, make sure you had the right food on the table, make sure there was lighting, make sure all your technology worked. You've got to take that sense of discipline and put it here. Mm. This, this is where the conversations are going to happen conceivably for the next year, or or the fact that we're now doing this more often. I think people will you know resort to this. This is be our default. So you have to become good at this, which means you have to be lit. You can't, you know, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, you, I, I've, I've, got, I've got good lighting here because I've got a, I've got a giant skylight. Um, but you can't, I'm, I've seen, I've been on too many lines and, and people, they're backlit, you know, want to talk about this. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, how's it going? I'm have, working really, really hard here. Okay. Um, we, we have to be, we, uh, if, if you want to carry on, credibility, then you have to, you know, this is just like mastering a conference room. Yeah. Um, you have to, we have to learn how to master, you know, have to master these things. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, they're, and they're, and they're super performative. The, the puzzle is too, is, is you've got to make it somehow interesting so you can, can, can give your, 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 you know, convey your ideas across it. Because in many cases, people are taking their laptops and they're going from here and they're walking, when they're watching Game of Thrones reruns, you know? Mm. Um, or they're watching some, you know, some new film on Netflix. So this image is, you know, later on tonight is going to be filled with dragons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And mm -hmm. so um, this is effective. It's television mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. expect it to be interesting. So, and you can't be, you, you can't be boring. Yeah. And you have to be, you have to be engaging. So people have to learn how to be engaging in these, um, in, in, in these contexts, because you'll be, for better or for, for worse, you'll be unfairly judged. Just like if you wear something, like we all show up at meetings, you know, dressing for how we want to be seen. So you have to show up here, you know, preparing and lighting and getting the sound right for how you want to be seen. Mm -hmm. It's as important, unfortunately. Mm. Bam. Bam. Well, thank you for never being boring, Brian Collins. I hope You've that was interesting. I've, I've, I've victimized your audience to all sorts of uh, <laughs> redundancies and uh, new ideas too. Maybe so, um, I hope so. It's a, it's, it's a privilege. I'm, I'm, I hope everyone's well. And I hope their families are doing well. We're, mm. we're, we're, our, the world that we knew is was taken away from us, and it's been replaced mm. by this mm. other one. You know, the only thing that I have is that is that uh, it's my favorite quote. I'm gonna if I can read it to, to close. Please, here. Please. It's from um, around this. Uh, is from I'm gonna drop a name. But, and, and, and it's, I'll, I'll read the quote for you first if I can find it in. Thing. Yeah, it's this. Is, um, optimism is a strategy for making a better future. Because unless you believe that the future can be better, you are unlikely to step up and take responsibility for making it so. If you assume, if you assume there is no hope, then you guarantee there will be no hope. Hmm. So hope is a weapon. Hmm. If you want to get, like if I want to take my sort of, my, my sort of next generation people. And I want to start off where we began, which is design is hope made visible. And I want to take those people who still militarize marketing, like we have to win, we have to get our battles, then fine. Then for those of you, if you want to combine both of them, then hope is my weapon. Mm. And hope is the thing that we're going to use um, to carve out a new future. Mm -hmm. And that is a weapon we can get behind here at Straight Talk Live. So thank you so much for showing up the way you do. Um, Linda, who in our audience just want to say, she gives you a quick reflection. What a passionate, authentic, refreshing, refreshing leader in our world of creativity. Thank so you. So thank you, Brian. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Brian. Fantastic. And bye, bye Brian, guys. Talk soon. Where can people find you real quick? Uh, uh, Brian, uh, oh, at, uh, well, we are, we are Collins.complicated. I'm sorry. We are probably, we got, we are Collins.com. And also, uh, uh, at Brian Collins, one, on Twitter. I just got 10,000 followers last week. That was funny. 
I'm up right. to 10. Like, After I'm this, gonna... it's going to double, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I only think, I'm only, always surprised when people want to hear more than what I say than like, than like my parents. So oh, We're going to watch you back. So thank you so much, Brian. You're always an amazing source. Yeah. It's of okay to see you. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Okay, be well, Brian. Bye. Thanks, Paul. And just for everyone on live, we're just going to share real quick our show next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about the future of technology and our robots going to be running the show when it comes to delivering our goods and services and how does that going to impact our humanity um, and how we move things through the world. So we have two leading experts in the world of robotics uh, and, and all kinds of amazing things coming up for that show. So please stay tuned. If you want to delve into the future, we'll continue from this conversation. So thank you all for tuning to Straight Talk Live. Af, any final words? Uh, absolutely fantastic session. Beautiful words from, from Brian. Very inspiring. And it's got me thinking about a lot of things we're doing with Straight Talk Live as well, of course, Rick, right? And um, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, a real honor and a real pleasure. And um, looking forward to talking to you and getting you back on the show again at some point in the near future. So adios, namaste, and thank you very much. Have a wonderful evening. Be well.